hundreds of protesters took to the streets surrounding a Portland, Oregon police precinct this past Thursday night, blocking traffic and chanting about burning it down. The group made its way to the front of Portland Police Bureau's East Precinct in central Portland early Thursday night where they crowded the street as they chanted and played music. Authorities reported that someone lit a small fire in the street while other protesters entered the police property. Police originally said they had no plans to engage with protesters, but changed their tune less than an hour later, shortly before 10 p.m. local time, Portland time, when a department tweet announced that they heard people from the crowd discussing their desire to enter the property and burn down the precinct. Approximately two hours later, police said the protest has been classified as an unlawful assembly and anyone who refused to leave would be subject to arrest or use of force. It was not immediately clear how many arrests, if any, were made. Sadly, scenes like this have not only taken place in Portland, but across our country's major cities, New York, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Seattle, and Washington, D.C., just to name a few. It is certainly a, a troubling time in America. Civil disturbances are everywhere in our major cities. Why are such things happening? Why are civil disturbances continuing to take place across our land? Why? Though there are many ways one could answer that question, today's passage does shed light on how civil disturbances often start And not only that, the passage today will show the characteristics of such disturbances and how to deal with civil unrest. The passage I'm referring to is Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. If you recall two weeks ago, the Apostle Paul was in the city of Ephesus, and in this city, there was a tremendous amount of occultic activity, supernatural activity, which was evident by the seven sons of Sceva. They were magicians casting out evil spirits from people. It was seen in that chapter, in that verse, in those verses, in that passage, that the power of the gospel, the power of Paul's preaching, and the power of the gospel was far superior than anything that was existing supernaturally in Ephesus. And the result was lives were changing and lives were transforming. As a result of that, it's going to impact the lives of those in Ephesus who have a particular way of life that don't want it to be disturbed. And unfortunately, for some people in Ephesus, it does. And it's going to create 
civil unrest in Ephesus, as we will see. This passage is about civil unrest in a city-state called Ephesus, which was in modern-day Turkey on the western side of the country. And what we find out about this civil disturbance in terms of how it originates is this. Civil disturbances often originate from an individual or a group of individuals who incite the masses in order to achieve an objective they can accomplish on their own. That's what's going to happen here. We're going to start in verse 23 to verse 27. About that time, there arose a great commotion, that is, a great disturbance, a public tumult, a breakdown of peaceful and law-abiding behavior. At that time, there was a great commotion about the way, that is, about Christianity. The way was the title that you would call the Christian movement before it was called Christian. So there's a commotion about Christianity. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, or Artemis, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute or being discredited, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence and her honor and her glory destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. What he's doing is manipulating and moving the masses to accomplish an objective that he does not want to have happen. You must understand that Christianity's success in the city of Ephesus was threatening certain industries that was based in large part on the worship of the goddess Artemis or Diana. Diana was a Roman name. Artemis was the chief goddess that was worshipped in Ephesus. Everybody came from all over the empire to go to, worship, to Ephesus to worship this goddess. Her temple was enormous. It was the length of a football field and a half and the width of a football field almost. It had 127 pillars around the building, 60 feet high. And people would come and deposit money into the temple. It was as a bank. And so a lot of people were making money by making silver niches with the goddess inside them, placing them as an offering inside of the temple. They would also, these artisans, silversmiths, would, would make silver replicas of the temple itself, and they were making a good profit from it. This would, the fact that Christianity was being successful in Ephesus certainly would have an economic impact on many living in Ephesus, altering their way of life. 
Demetrius the silversmith was one of those so affected, and he concluded that the Christian movement in his land must be stopped. But how can he do it? He doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the position to stop this Christian movement that is affecting his income and those of similar occupation. So what is he going to do? Incite the masses of people. Well, how does he do that? He first calls a private meeting of all of the craftsmen and those of similar occupation. He only calls these people to the he only calls these people that is those who have a similar occupation as he does to the meeting because he knows that these individuals share the same economic interests he does. Knowing this, Demetrius understands that they will be more likely to agree with the things that he's going to say and gain their consent for what he wants to accomplish, which is to stop the spread of Christianity in his land and ensure financial prosperity for all of them. But Demetrius can't end his speech there, for if he does, it would appear that he and those of similar occupation were only concerned about their own interests, and that would be selfish. It would also limit the amount of people who would support his cause to the craftsmen and those of similar occupation. So being aware of how much the people of Ephesus love to worship the goddess Artemis, he taps into the patriotic and religious fervor of those attending the meeting in order to incite the masses at large. He accomplishes this by reminding the people of what Paul had been saying throughout his stay in Ephesus, that he has turned away many people saying, they are not gods that are made with hands. Reminding those of similar occupation of this fact would cause them to respond emotionally, for they thoroughly believe that Artemis was divine. And to be a good Ephesian, you must worship Artemis. When Demetrius brings up the fact that the divinity of Artemis was being challenged and that she may lose her honor and magnificence in the process, those of similar occupation would become enraged and take to their anger to the streets in protest. That's what he's doing. He wants to stop Christianity. He doesn't have the means to do it. So he's going to use the mob at his disposal to accomplish an objective he can on his own. He incites the people. And he knows and taps into their love and fervor and fidelity to Artemis and the worship of this goddess. And now the people are going to respond to what he's saying. Is he successful? And in inspiring a mob, read verses 28 and part of verse 29. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion. That is chaos and a breakdown of civic order. Do you see what he has done? He has incited the masses using their love and patriotic fervor to rile them up. And they go out into the streets and they chant with their fists pumped in the air, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I can see it today. They would have banners and they would wear t-shirts saying, Diana is divine. That's what they would be doing. If it was to be played out today, that's what they would be doing. And notice what happened. The crowd is chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. 
as if that's the reason why they're out there protesting. Is that the reason why? No. The reason why they're protesting is because of economics. That's why. The people who are protesting don't truly understand, particularly those in the city who are not privy to the private meeting, they are not aware that they're, they're not really protesting uh, uh, fidelity to, to Artemis or Diana. They're protesting a person who has minimal power and minimal control and his financial situation. That's what they're protesting. In other words, there were people who were protesting for a cause that really wasn't the cause of the protest. Do you see it? What's happening in our streets today? Are they protesting for a particular issue? They may think they are because that's what they're inspired up to talk about. When we little do they know that there are people behind the scenes who are orchestrating them like puppets on a string to achieve either a personal objective, an economic objective, or a political objective. And the, the masses have no idea Demetrius is skillful, and he used the mob to accomplish an objective, which is to stop Christianity. He didn't care about whether or not Artemis was worshipped. He cared about his income, and the worship of Artemis was a means to that end. Are there people who have minimal power and influence using a mob to accomplish purposes for themselves? Whether they be economic, political, or personal, they want more power? I can't think of a text that is more relevant to today than the one that this one is speaking to. The, the point is this. The mob is created oftentimes by a group of, a, of individuals or an individual working behind the scenes to get them to do something which they cannot do for themselves. That's what the mob is used for. It was used for by Demetrius here and it's being done today. The author now switches from the origin of such a mob and such a civil disturbance to the characteristics of the mob itself and how they react. First, we saw the speech of Demetrius. Now we're going to look at how the mob responds. There are three characteristics of a mob that the author reveals to us in this passage. Number one. The mob will often take the law into their own hands. Verses 28 and 29. Now when they, that is the whole city, when they heard this, well, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and they rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. The first thing they did was rush themselves into the theater. What is the theater? The theater still exists today in the city of Ephesus. If you look up the theater in Ephesus, you will see a picture of it. It was a semicircle carved on the south slope of a mountain. And it had about 20, it could hold 23 to 25,000 people. The city of Ephesus contained anywhere from 180,000 to 200,000 people, similar to Sioux Falls. 
And they would go to the theater. The theater's purpose and function was to hold a legal assembly. It's where they conducted civic business three times a month. This crowd wants to act in a legal way illegally. And so they go to the theater to bring about justice their way. And they don't take time to think and consider their course of action, this mob does. When they hear of what is going on in the streets, they grab two people, Gaius and Aristarchus. They seize them by force. And they're going to bring them into the theater to judge him illegally. They're taking the law into their own hands. That's what mob mentality will do. There's no discussion. It's just action and response, immediate. And that's what they're doing here. They're going to judge Gaius and Aristarchus in an illegal court session, taking the law into their own hands. That's what mobs do. We've seen it in cities of Minneapolis, Seattle. They get riled up and they don't like what's going on, so we'll burn it down. We will throw rocks at windows and we'll loot the store. We'll do street justice. That's what we'll do. We don't like a statue and what it stands for, we'll deface it and we'll pull it down because we can. Street justice, taking the law into your own hands. That's mob mentality. Secondly, the mob will often be bewildered and ignorant of the reasons why they are taking such illegal and violent actions. Verses 30 to 32. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, that is the leading citizens of Ephesus and the province, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another. For the unofficial, informal, unlawful assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. Isn't that characterized a mob? Many of them who were in the city had no idea why they were screaming, hot, hooling, and hollering, what they were there for. I remember when some of the rioting was going on in Minneapolis, there was a reporter who was covering looting that was taking place. And the reporter went over, went over to a, a young woman who had a cell phone in her hand. And he went up to her and said, excuse me, why are you doing this? She says, I don't know. I want to get a free TV. That was her answer. How many people would respond that way? A lot. People aren't concerned with social justice oftentimes. There are clearly people who are and should be, as, we, as should the church. But many in a mob mentality are not thinking that way. You get an opportunity to do some damage or do, get free stuff? Eh, why not? Mob mentality thinks that way, does this. It's characteristics of civil disturbance. Thirdly, the mob will attempt to silence all voices that are not in agreement with their line of thinking. Verses 33 and 34. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, 
all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians, and never gives the Jewish individual Alexander an opportunity to speak and make a defense. Why? Why are, first of all, why is the Jewish individual Alexander want to make a defense? This has to do with Paul and Christianity, not the Jews. Uh, but you see, the Jews were very much aware of how mob mentalities work. Okay? The Jews had nothing to do with the spread of Christianity and the cause of the economic impact, the negative economic impact it was having on certain craftsmen. The Jews had nothing to do with that. That was Christianity. But you see, people in Ephesus who were rioting understood that, well, Paul was a Jew. These are also Jews. So there may be a connection between the two. The mob was chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Why would they say that? They understood the Jews did not worship Artemis. The Jews, like Christians, are monotheists and only worship one God. And all that mattered to the rioters was that you don't believe what we believe, so we don't want you to speak. Does that happen today? Does the mob want those who disagree with what they're doing or what they're thinking an opportunity to have a voice? Certainly not. You can see it in media, in, 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 the, in the media. Facebook and Twitter, you say something that goes against the mob's point of view, they shame you into silence and don't say a word. That's characteristic of civil, uh, civil disturbance and a mob mentality. These are three characteristics of mob rule, and we have seen every single one of them at play going on in our nation, across the nation. After describing the characteristics of civil disturbances and mob mentality, the author now shifts to how to deal with such civil disturbances. Number one, civil disturbances are often quelled when those who have authority intervene and exercise that authority justly for all. Verses 35 and 37. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Let me stop right there. What this city clerk is saying is this. There's no reason to fear or be concerned about the fact that Diana is divine. Because we are the temple guardians of the goddess and of the image which came from Zeus. What he's saying is the image that fell from heaven. Zeus was in heaven. Paul had been going around telling, telling the people, if you make a God with your hands, it's not divine. It's not truly God. This guy is saying, well, wait a minute. There was a time when an image fell from heaven, most likely a meteorite, because in those days, when a meteorite fell from the sky, they would take that object and worship it as if it was some kind of a, a divine image. And he's saying, look, he's refuting Paul here. No, we don't worship an image not made, uh, we, don't, we don't worship an image made with hands. We worship an image that began without any hands working on it. So he's saying, listen, calm down. Diana is divine. We all know that. Our history understands that. 
Okay? Then he says this, Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Now, what was a city clerk? The city clerk was the highest civic official in the city, like a mayor. And he was charged with keeping records, being present when money was deposited in the temple, and serving as a registrar, among other things. He was the very sort of person one would expect to step forward and object if some sort of irregular or illegal assembly was occurring. And that's what he's doing. Here's an individual who has the authority and uses the authority to quell the disturbance. As I look around our nation today, those who have authority, let me ask you a question. Are they using their authority really to quell the disturbances within their city? You're shaking your heads. You know the answer to that question. Not only are they willing to exercise authority justly, they're not willing to exercise authority at all. And the question is why? Some purpose? Some agenda? If you want to quell a civil disturbance, those who have authority and power must wield it justly for everyone. And this individual was doing so because he was going to protect Gaius and Aristarchus, who were going to be wrongly accused. Number two, any grievances that people have must be handled lawfully through the legal process, the courts, not through unlawful civic disturbances. Verses 38 and 39. Therefore, the city clerk says, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case or a matter against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls who can judge them justly. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. If you have an issue, there are proper, proper courses of action to take with which to deal with such grievances. So when people see a statue and they don't like what it represents, you can debate whether or not it should be there or not or whether it's reprehensible or not. But what is illegal is to go on someone's property, government or otherwise, and do what you think should be done, like defacing it and ripping it apart. If you don't want a statue there, you go through the legal channels and do it justly and rightly. That's what he's saying. Mobs don't do that. But this city official is encouraging justice and the legal process by which to handle any grievances. And when you have civil disturbances, that goes right out the window. And thirdly, failure to stop civic disturbances could lead to charges of sedition and the taking away of the city's freedoms. Verses 40 and 41. He goes on, the city clerk says, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What's he saying? 
You have to understand that Ephesus was a Greek free city-state. And if they don't quell the civil disturbance, what's going to happen? Rome's going to come in and they're going to take away the freedoms. And believe me, Rome had political reasons to do so. They wanted emperor worship. They didn't want to have these city-states free. They wanted control. This would be an occasion for the Romans to come in and squash any freedom that they may have had. If we as a society cannot maintain civil order, there will be a, we, it will be forcefully impressed upon a, a city and a society in order to maintain it. And the freedoms that we have become threatened. That's what will happen. This is Ephesus, a time of civil unrest. And the author is explaining to us how it begins the characterization of a mob and how it should be dealt with by those in power and authority because they're the only ones who can do it. We can't. So what does this say to us? It seems like God is not in control. You ask people, given what's going on in our, in our cities and our nation, it seems like it's absolute chaos and God is not in control. But God is in control. And I know that because of verses 21 and 22 go at the very beginning of this of this chapter of this of this passage listen to this when these things were accomplished that is when paul was successful in ministering the gospel to the Ephesians, to the city of ephesus when these things were accomplished and paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through macedonia and achaia to go to jerusalem saying after i have been there i must also see rome and so he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And while he's staying in Asia for a time, the riot happens. And it appears, as a result of the riot, shortly thereafter, Paul leaves. And it appears that Demetrius's plan worked. He got the Apostle Paul out of Ephesus. But this passage says, before the riot even began, that God had determined that Paul should leave to suggest that God's timing was in absolute control of everything that was going on. He's not going to give credit to Demetrius as stopping God's work in a city. God is in control of all the, the, the time span in which a person will be serving as a pastor or serving in the mission field in a particular country. He will control it, not the forces that are trying to go against his movement in a particular geographical location. This tells me that in spite of all the chaos that goes on in the world in which we see and live, God is in control. The God of order is in control of all of this order that we see within our nation. Keep that in mind as we continue to see the civil unrest unfold amidst our cities when those who have power should be taking responsibility and exercising the authority to do them. That's their responsibility because we put them there. Remember this. God is in control of all that is happening in the midst of all of that unrest. We know that up here, but when we see these things go on, we can get very easily discouraged. God is in control. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word today. There's never been a time where I've read this passage 
where it is more relevant to us than it is today. And our hearts are troubled by all the civil unrest that we see in our world. It's troubling. And Lord, we just pray that that you would work in the hearts and minds of those who have the means to put this to an end, that they would do so. That they would stop manipulating and utilizing people for their own purposes, fulfilling their own agendas. And help us, Lord, as your children, to have the proper perspective on all that we see and hear. And help us to be your people in the midst of it all, loving each other and those who are in and being used by those in power, the mob. Lord, you love them, and they're lost and misguided. Help us to live in such a way and to know your word in such a way that we can bring clarity and truth, calmness of spirit in any situation. We ask, Lord, that you would bring change to this nation and that you would start that process by transforming one person at a time. That's what you were doing in Ephesus to begin with. And may that be true here in our land, in our community, in Millbank. Amen.